Tanya Jansen. Following the completion of the UN Climate Change Conference, otherwise known as COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this November, where 45,000 participants from countries around the world attended that conference, uh, we understood at the event's opening, it was uh, there were 194 countries that signed the Paris Agreement in 2015 that would work together towards their pledge to limit greenhouse gas emissions and keep the global temperature rise below 1.5 Celsius. And prior to COP27, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said if temperatures rise above 1.7 Celsius, half of the world's population could be exposed to life-threatening heat. Now, with us today to chat about the goals and outcomes of COP27 and to provide some insights on policy and finance for green energy are Dr. Warren Maybe, Director of the School of Policy Studies and Associate Dean of the Faculty in Arts and Science, along with Dr. Ryan Reardon, Smith School of Business Professor and Distinguished Professor of Finance and Director of Research for the Institute of Sustainable Finance. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we get started, gentlemen, uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your respective areas of research. Ryan, how about we start with you? Sure. I'm a, I'm a professor of finance at the, the Smith School of Business. And as I already mentioned, I'm also the research director for the Institute for Sustainable Finance. And so what my, my area of expertise anyways, at least particularly with respect to sustainable finance is on how do we finance a transition from, let's say, I don't wanna say the economy of old, but the, uh, the carbon intensive economy to a less carbon intensive economy. And so how do we allocate capital? How do we identify innovations that are gonna help us to, to meet our, our climate goals? And um, how do we deal with uh, adaptation and mitigation? Because we know already that there are gonna be costs associated with the effects we've already had on the environment. And we have to think about ways to uh, to adapt and to mitigate these, uh, th these changes. Fascinating. Warren, let's hear from you. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Geography and Planning uh, in Arts and Science, as well as being the director of the School of Policy Studies. So uh, I have a research portfolio that kind of straddles um, renewable energy technologies, so where we're going with the technologies and the resources that we need to be able to uh, support renewable energy and the policies that we need in order to be able to drive that forward. So for the past 20 odd years, I've been looking at different policy solutions uh, and pairing it up with the various technologies available. Mm -hmm. uh, a big part of my job is to understand, you know, what's coming down the pipeline, what new technologies are there, and how can they help us to achieve some of our policy goals? And how should policy change to respond to those new technologies, new opportunities? Okay. Thank you so much. Now, for our listeners out there, uh, can we learn from you uh, what UN climate change conferences are, what they normally set out to do, uh, what achievements have past COPs had, and, and maybe what was on the agenda this year, too. Uh, Warren, let's start with you. Sure. So uh, the Conference of the Parties is, is what COP stands for. And, and actually, there are many different conferences of the parties within the UN system. It's actually a little bit confusing 
uh, when you start to dive in, there's a, a COP meeting coming up in Montreal on biodiversity, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a different number because it's in a different year. So COP27 means that this is the 27th meeting of the Conference of the Parties uh, looking at environment, climate change. Um, <clears throat> 27 years is a long time. There have been a number of pretty high profile meetings along the way. Uh, Kyoto, uh, which was COP3, I believe, uh, was maybe the most famous for a long time because that's where the Kyoto Protocol mm -hmm. was established. Uh, and the Kyoto Protocol was the first real global effort to come up with mechanisms to help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and we could talk about the Kyoto Protocol and, and its success or failure. Uh, certainly it didn't do what it was originally intended to do, uh, but it did lay a lot of groundwork for tools that we're using to now, you know, including emissions trading and uh, uh, putting prices on carbon. You know, these are tools that really entered the mainstream around uh, COP3. Uh, the Paris meeting, uh, you know, was a very important COP because that was one where uh, we did have, you know, almost 200 countries come together to agree to take action on climate change. But uh, the Paris meeting sort of reflected how the, the COP meetings have gone in that it didn't result in a protocol or a binding sort of a policy. It, it resulted in an agreement. Uh, and more and more of the COP meetings are, are coming up with agreements rather than binding protocols, binding targets, uh, mostly because it's so hard for people to come to those. Um, and that brings us to to the present day and and the meeting in in Egypt. Okay, thanks, Ryan. Uh, would you like to add anything in here? Perhaps some other trends that have emerged from previous COPs. Sure. Uh, Warren did a pretty good job of explaining the the history and the background of COPs in uh, in general. Uh, I, I would liken it to a, a Woodstock for environmentalists. Uh, <laughs> when you go there, it, it has sort of that that sort of youthful energy feeling. So I wasn't in Sharm el-Sheikh, but I was in uh, I was in Glasgow last year at COP26. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting environment. And I think a lot of things are going on simultaneously that that uh, that are that are interesting. You've got all of the events that are outside of the actual official event. You've got, uh, of course, big protests. Mm -hmm. but you have small protests. Then you have uh, groups of people that are um, that are neither protesting nor not protesting. They're just sort of trying to inform themselves. Uh, you have, uh, you know, leading up to all of the cops, <laughs> I happen to be receiving lots of emails from people that are trying to gain entry with badges because getting into the official part of COP is actually a, a, a big, uh, is, is a big thing. And then at the COP itself, so at the, the sort of the official part, you know, behind the security barricades, there's a lot of really exciting things going on, and that's sort of what we end up seeing in the in the news. Well, you'll have you know Joe Biden or um, Trudeau up on stage shaking hands with uh, with with sort of other foreign dignitaries making pledges about whatever it is that they happen to be making pledges about. But there's also a number, hundreds sometimes, of small, very technical UN meetings mm -hmm. where this conference of parties that Warren was talking about really get together and talk about. I mean, I sat in on one of them just because I wanted to, but about project financing through a particular 
financing program through the UN and how funds were to be dispersed in parts of Africa. And people would report on the individual projects, then individual countries could be Saudi Arabia. I happen to be sitting uh, beside the Saudi Arabian delegate or behind them actually. And they would ask questions about how funds were being dispersed. So there's a lot of really big things going on. There's a lot of, I would call it almost tedious things that are going on, but are I think necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a lot of excitement with all of the, you know, the the, the Woodstock style um, activism outside of the, the the gates. So it's I, I can also just attest for myself. It's also very overwhelming. So I I can't imagine how people can actually stay productive for two weeks there just because it's so overwhelming. Well, and and thank you for painting that picture as well. I wonder if we can come back to this year's agenda, if there's so much activity uh, at various levels happening, whether it's the world leaders meeting together versus or, or alongside uh, smaller conclaves of groups uh, meeting together in some conference space or UN committees meeting and reporting on things. How does all of this coalesce in order to meet particular goals and outcomes of each COP and and have have the goals been met? But let's return to this year's agenda, perhaps. Can we can we talk about it and and how things work when you have so much going on? Ryan, start us off. Sure. Um, now I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on on the agenda setting, but right. the, the way that I view it as a, let's say, an informed observer, there there really appear to be two agendas, right? One is a really set agenda from the individual committees about the things that they have to get done while they're all there, right? You've got 195 delegates or countries uh, send 100, 195 countries roughly send delegates to sit in the meetings, make technical decisions, move forward on individual projects. And I think that's all fairly rigorously set out by the UN or through the UN uh, FCCC. Then there's the agenda that I think we all consume afterwards. And I think that agenda is set dynamically, right? If you took a look at the COP this year, it really wasn't until almost two days afterwards that there was sort of an agreement on a number of things. And so that people might have um, an intrinsic agenda, things that they really would like to see get done. Sometimes they get done, sometimes they don't, but you might have 194 other countries that just have an alternative agenda and they don't want really to make any kind of pro well i shouldn't say they don't want to make progress but we just can't make progress so there's a i'd say a really minute set in stone agenda for the technical committees and then there's an agenda that emerges dynamically and i'll maybe i'll leave it to warren to talk about you know what i can do i mean i'm not trying to <laughs> trying to throw you a, a hard one here but you know what the agenda really was that emerged and whether we met it and we can go back and forth on what we think the the big topics were Perfect, Warren. Yeah, so the agendas are typically set up around a number of themes this year. They had four themes that they wanted to address. Uh, So they had a a big theme on mitigation, uh, which is reducing CO2 emissions. They had a big theme on adaptation, uh, which is responding to and doing different things, uh, mostly in the areas of agriculture and forestry as it happened this year. Um, They had a big theme on cooperation. So how are they going to, uh, or how are we going to engender better cooperation between uh, different parties, particularly parties that have been recalcitrant? You know, we we actually have 
some real problems right now in, in the international diplomatic scene. You know, there are countries that are not participating the way that, that we would like them to. Uh, and then the big one, actually, that probably dominated the agenda was around finance. So uh, pledges were made at Glasgow and actually prior to Glasgow and in previous COPs around providing money um, for losses and for damages. Um, the mechanism whereby that money would be made available had to be discussed. And then the ways in which it would actually be shared out, you know, who would get it? Uh, how much would they get? You know, those those were kind of the big questions to be asked. And uh, just on the agenda setting, you know, I've been involved a little bit in this back in the days when I was working with the UN. And um, it, it's it's sort of built <clears throat> a little bit like uh, an inverted tree. You know, you start with a lot of small meetings. Uh, it can be as small as a bilateral between two nations or uh, between different groups. And you work your way up to the plenary. And so groups are coming together, they are meeting, they are uh, working their way through issues, and then they're bringing it back to plenary. Mm -hmm. And the plenary meetings, uh, which is where you have ministers or sometimes presidents and prime ministers, uh, is where uh, actual voting can happen and where actual decision making can happen. Okay. So you 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 touched on, um, uh, for example, a few countries that hadn't been uh, participating or participating as much as they had uh, perhaps originally pledged. Uh, but I got the feeling from uh, just uh, ahead of time uh, ahead of the conference too, uh, after reading a comment from one uh, Julie Segal, who is a finance expert, I understand from environmental defense, and uh, they were at the conference and and had stated that the litmus test for this cop to be a success is to move forward with what's called a loss damage fund mechanism That's i'd right. like to learn a little bit more about this in the in the about this concept and and in the context of what it means for wealthy countries participation versus that of the global south can we hear more yeah so i can start um the loss and damage fund uh is or, or is intended to be a fund that will address the fact that many of the impacts of global warming are being disproportionately felt in uh, the global south, or maybe a better way to put it is it's being disproportionately felt um, in the, the uh, nations that have less to do with causing global warming in the first place. So you have Countries uh, across Europe and in North America and parts of the Pacific Rim that have driven a huge amount of what is we're seeing in terms of global warming, a huge amount of the global emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones, uh, and we are one of them, that are producing uh, the CO2 and, and the other pollutants that are causing the problems. Uh, but it's, it's island nations and it's uh, nations that are equatorial and it is nations that are experiencing desertification uh, that are suffering the most. And so a loss and damage fund, uh, the intention there is to uh, provide those nations with some recompense for the fact that they're now suffering the effects of, of our bad behavior. It's a hugely controversial fund. Uh, many people uh, on you know parts of the political spectrum, just see it as a uh, a way to redistribute wealth. 
you know, this is it's just another way to redistribute wealth. Uh, there are people that that find that offensive. There are people that think that that's uh, they're just disguising <laughs> the fact that it's a loss and damage fund. Um, uh, it's it's really just a way to take money away from the richer nations and spread it around to other nations. Uh, but I think it's it's undisputable that some of these countries are going to suffer in ways that you know parts of Canada will not. You know, Tuvalu will go underwater. Mm -hmm. That's that's the uh, extreme example. Uh, but if the warming continues, the entire nation will be underwater. That's not a challenge that we're facing in Canada. We face challenges, but it's nothing like that. Ryan. Yeah, I think on top of it, uh, Warren did a great job of, of, of setting it up. One thing that people often forget is that um, we, have this, we have this focus when we're talking about emissions on the emissions over the last 12 months. We don't think about the cumulative emissions, right? Because the warming that we're seeing today isn't because of the emissions from the last 12 months. It's the emissions from the last 140 years, right? Since the start of the Industrial Revolution, right? right? And, and so even if we do a really good job and we become, uh, you know, zero net new emissions next year, we are still responsible for a good, you know, depending on how you calculate, two or 3% of total, total global emissions. And, you know, until we get those out of the atmosphere, we are also, at least on a sort of, I would say, in a moral perspective, responsible for two to three percent of the damages related to, to, to climate change, right? And, and so that's, I think that's the, the what often gets sort of, sort of missed. And then Warren, as he already mentioned, that you know a lot of the countries that are suffering these these impacts really haven't emitted very much, and they haven't benefited as a country in terms of their infrastructure from all of the emissions that. That we have right so emissions are sort of you know easy we can build things with it we can build prosperity hospitals schools all of these things and so we benefit from all of these emissions over the last 140 years right and now other countries are suffering and so the idea is that you know it it appears to me obvious that a just way to do it would be to at the very least help with some of the the loss and damages suffered uh, you know suffered by what it is that we've done and what we've benefited from. And so I would say cautiously that we've made some progress at COP27. There was a big commitment at COP26. I mean, a big, because it was one of the first times, I think it was the 100 billion uh, that, was, that was committed. And so now we're, I mean, we have to be clear, right? At COP27, I think we're getting closer to actually having the 100 billion that has already been been pledged. So this is progress, right? I mean, just in binary terms, more is being committed and we're getting closer to that. But I think also it's fairly clear that $100 billion is not going to cover the actual loss and damages. It doesn't matter if you take the IPCC um, estimates or other ones, you know, we're, we're really probably talking about hundreds of billions of dollars at least a year in, in, actual, in, in actual damage. So okay. it's a start. Maybe it's more than a drop in the bucket, but I think we need to think about this more. And it is a political hot potato, but so is everything. Right? So <laughs> just because it's a political hot potato doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Indeed. So, Ryan, uh, you did you know, mention a couple of uh, roadblocks and, and some progress made. I wonder if you can um, uh, funnel it down into uh, progress and roadblocks in the areas of sustainable finance. Sure. But before I do that, I'd like to maybe just and see what what Warren thinks about about this. For me, there were there were a lot of 
finance takeaways and the loss and damage fund was what was one of them and carbon markets was a was another one or the lack of progress in carbon markets but what to me struck me leading up to it i think most of us were expecting a lot of talk about adaptation and uh, a lot of talk about the loss and damage fund but it was really surprising to me this was the first time that most people had admitted we're not going to meet our our 1.5 degree warming or not more than 1.5 degree warming. In fact, all of a sudden, most people are saying, oh, you know, we're probably going to hit one and a half degrees this decade, right? And and so it was uh, not that I'm uh, an expert on the, on the, you know, the geoscience part of it, but it's just been pretty obvious looking at all of the data that we've seen that we're, we're going to exceed this and we probably already are. And there's probably nothing, even if we removed all of it from the atmosphere tomorrow, right? The the wheels are probably so, so much in motion. So I thought that was a big change. And actually, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was, you know, some people were highlighting the fact that, well, you know, if we admit that this, then people aren't going to make any changes. I'm of the opinion that we should be perfectly honest with people and, and you know, let them make their own decisions based on that. So that was, for me, the biggest change from COP26 to COP27 was this, this admission almost that we're not going to make the, the initial goal. And I don't think that should reduce our efforts in any way, but I did think it motivated a lot of people to really start talking about adaptation more. Mm-hmm. Right? Up until COP26, we were all, it was just all mitigation, all mitigation, new technologies, remove carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, bridge fuels. Now COP27 to me was almost like, yeah, this is real and we're going to have to suffer the consequences. And so that was a big a big change, I think, in tone from from COP26. And that was, for me, the biggest takeaway, because all of the other stuff is kind of foreseeable. People are going to argue about money and, you know, trying to get two countries to agree to anything is going to be hard. Getting 195 to agree is, you know, one to the, you know, the 195th power, which would still be one, but you know what I mean? Just a lot harder. Okay, thank you. And and Warren, what are your thoughts on on Ryan's comments and and maybe some developments related to global policy uh, related to green energy? Yeah, so I very much agree uh, with Ryan that um, the tone is shifting at these meetings, and the tone is shifting more towards okay, how are we going to deal with it, rather than how are we going to stop it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, certainly. Uh, going back to Kyoto, you know, there was an immediate thought that we could stop it if we could just cut the emissions. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, to look at the way the different environmental groups position themselves in the 90s versus how they position themselves today. Uh, because in the 90s, it was all about stopping it, stopping global warming, stopping climate change, uh, reversing it and and moving things back into a safe zone. Uh it's hard to know if that was possible even then, you know, and, and there are people that would, would say absolutely it was, you know, uh, half of the emissions have happened since then. So if we could only have stopped it at that point, we could have, we could have dealt with it. I think that uh, stopping an economy and stopping everything on a dime is a lot harder than, than most people realize. Um you know, on one hand, 27 years of these meetings is a lot. But on the other hand, um, the rate of change is actually quite great in these areas. Like we we've have brought a whole lot of new technologies on board very fast. 
uh, and there are new solutions that will help us with adaptation going forward. Uh, when it comes to green energy, though, there was less discussion at this meeting than I would have expected. There was much more discussion about uh, some of the technologies that, that are going to be essential, but not energy producing. So uh, drought resistant crops, that was a big point of discussion. How do we um, engineer, you know, either through through advanced breeding or genetics or, or genomics? Uh, how do we get these drought resistant crops going? Because uh, if we could develop some, we can offset some of the damages that we're foreseeing. You know, it could cut the damages by half. Um, how do we uh, strengthen uh, forest protection? Because we know that deforestation in and of itself is actually a massive driver of climate change. You know, uh, arguably the little ice age that uh, we experienced a thousand years ago uh, was caused by deforestation in North America, you know, which, which was driven by um, uh, the expansion and settlement um, pre-European contact. Uh, just like uh, the cooling that we experienced was probably from the regrowth of forests um, after the Great Plagues wiped out so many of the population that were here. So dealing with the forestry side, dealing with the agriculture side is going to be really important going forward. It, it might be the most important thing that we can do, uh, but the green energy piece is going to be essential. Uh, the only reason I can see that we didn't talk about it as much is it might be because it's moving so fast. Uh, we've gone from, you know, how are we going to make solar energy work or how are we going to make wind energy work uh, to, um, you know, how can we just roll it out a little bit faster? That's uh, one of the positive things that's happened over the last decade and a half. Uh, the technologies have become a lot cheaper. Uh, the manufacturing has become a lot more straightforward. The supply chains are becoming established. Uh, I think that um, actually we've, we've made so much progress that maybe it doesn't have to be the focus of these meetings. Maybe these meetings go a different way. Okay. So I wonder if we, before we close, gentlemen, uh, if we can bring it home a little bit um, and learn more about uh, Canada's participation, uh, hitherto COP27 and some of the outcomes for Canada at this COP in, in Egypt. Uh, where are we, Brian? Well, I think the, the, the most salient message was, I think this was the first time Canada, at least in a long time, actually had a stand or had a had a, a pavilion at uh, at COP twenty seven. Uh, so I was I didn't say I was shocked. I was just surprised when I went to COP twenty six and I walk around like, hey, I got to find some Canadians and some some maple syrup, you know. And, and I couldn't find a Canadian pavilion, and I was you know a little dismayed that we didn't have one. And so I was I was happy to see uh, that 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 we had one um, had one. And this was supposed to be a small COP, right? There's not that there's actually any differences between the COPs, but you know, there's usually there's a big cop. Glasgow was supposed to, you know, was supposed to be the, you know, a big cop. And this was supposed to be a smaller cop. So I, I think it was good. And I think it's a good sign for Canada to say, hey, look, you know, we actually really care about this stuff. We're going to have a pavilion there. We're really going to be engaged. Um, and one of the things I kind of skipped over is sustainable financing. And I'll maybe I'll bring it back to the Canadian perspective as well. Um, 
one thing, and, and Warren, you had sort of talked about policy, and one of the biggest policies, and I think one thing that's really going to help is, is car- carbon markets. Uh, so the, the the ability to trade credits. Now, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what kind of offsets are we, you know, the offsets are the actual credits, are they forests, are we, hey, do we decide not to cut down a forest and now we get credits, but let's just stay away from that. I think that the right implementation of a carbon market, voluntary or mandatory, uh, is is important. And Canada still has one, but perhaps in the future, many functioning carbon markets. And I think we should really think about, you know, solve a lot of these problems interprovincially, and then use that as sort of a model to go, I think, internationally. I, I think this would be the time, you know, we've, I would say we almost agree on the carbon tax now. I mean, it's mostly implemented and it's been pretty well litigated. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that it's probably, even though it's a political hot potato as well, um, hopefully here to stay. And I think then moving on to things like carbon markets um, are are the things that we could really push forward in Canada. And, and I know Mark Carney, who happens to be at least part Canadian, uh, is really behind the voluntary carbon markets. And so I would love to see that as someone who thinks that markets are a good way to solve things. I mean, of course, we can have market failures. They don't solve every problem. But I think this is one of them they can they can solve. So I'd like to see more progress on that. And I'd love to see Canada leading the charge. Warren. Yeah. <clears throat> on Canada's participation and and uh, the role that we played at, at COP27, I think Ryan's exactly right. We, we had a much bigger presence than we've had at some meetings. And part of the reason for that is that we have a lot to talk about. This government has put... Uh, a number of policies into play, into motion that are designed to help us address emissions. You know, there is a timeline and the timeline is becoming much clearer. Um, And the policy portfolio that they are slowly unveiling, you know, kind of a new policy every month, this seems to be the way that uh, we're moving. Uh, It's addressing the different emissions buckets that we have to get at. So uh, I'm actually, um, you know, very optimistic that uh, the directions that we're taking are going to uh, be positive and that we're going to see some some uh, outcomes along the lines of what we're hoping to see. I totally agree with Ryan <clears throat> on the issue around carbon markets. And it is one of the things I wish, you know, was, was done a little bit more at COP. Um, and one of the problems with the carbon markets in their first or second or third iterations is that they've been very focused on the transaction moment. So when you emit, you pay. Uh, If you avoid an emission, you don't pay, you know, so it's kind of on that basis. Um, But one of the things that I think we're starting to recognize increasingly is that there are carbon solutions that are sort of temporary, you know, we can sequester on a short term, and there are carbon solutions that are longer term. And Uh, It's not just carbon capture, it's the way that we use carbon in the built environment, it's the way that we treat carbon in a day-to-day sort of way. And, and, you know, where I'd like to see the carbon markets go, and, you know, actually one of the things that I want to take back to the ISF, the Institute for Sustainable Finance, is uh, how we can uh, look at the value of carbon in sequestration and the value of long-term sequestration and you know could we even get to a point where there are carbon dividends for doing good things or carbon penalties for doing 
bad things. So a more evolved market than the one that we have now. I think there's lots of opportunity to get there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess one last thing I'd say about the COP meetings, I'm not really a great fan of, of the Woodstock approach. I think that I, I don't know that we need it every year, you know, and, and the idea that we have a big COP every few years and then small COPs in between, uh, maybe that sort of addresses it. Um, I do think that we want to see progress every year. There needs to be reporting and discussion about it. Uh, and, and that's what I really look forward to at these meetings is, is the discussion that it engenders. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful going forward. Okay. And with that, uh, overall, I guess the, the big existential question I, I might have is how, uh, how optimistic are the two of you that, uh, COP27 outcomes or future COP outcomes will help Paris Agreement signatories actually reach these greenhouse gas emission goals set out. Well, maybe I'll just throw a thought in there. Um, I don't think it's the COP meetings that are actually uh, getting us to the solutions. You know, occasionally mm -hmm. there's a breakthrough at COP, which is important and which uh, is essential to move forward. The Paris Agreement, I think, was one of those moments where there was a, a breakthrough uh, sort of, aha, we're going to work together and we're going to try to get there. Um, and having those Paris Agreement targets has been incredibly powerful for individual nations. Uh, but I see COP going forward as more of that reporting back mechanism and less of the crucial point where we make the decisions. A lot of those decisions going forward are going to be made by individual nations uh, I don't think COP goes away. Um, you know, I think we do need the reporting back. We need to be held accountable and we need to hold people accountable. Uh, but I think that uh, the important thing now is to work on the nuances of these solutions, you know, develop those carbon markets, work on the adaptation pieces, roll out those renewable energy, you know, generation and storage options. Uh, continue to push and and hit benchmarks. That's where we need to be getting. And Ryan, let's hear from you. Yeah, I'll take it uh, in a different direction. Um, I would say that I, th I think that meeting the goals of a COP, yeah, I mean, you know, th these are important things to do. Uh, but we we just can't let ourselves get down about things, right? So a lot of people really were really worried about the 1.5 degrees or two, thinking that hey, either we keep it under 1.5 or two, or everything's all over. That that's not really the case, right? It's not black or white or binary. It's you know every little bit of of warming that we can avoid emissions and therefore warming that we can avoid is is good. And so we just have to to instead of seeing it as a race where we either win or we lose or you know, we either get to the top of the mountain or we fall to the bottom. You know, it, it's every little step along the way helps. And so I think cops are really good to focus attention, as Warren mentioned, to report back. Also, to coerce people to make decisions because it's like, hey, you know, 19 of the G20 leaders are going to be on the stage saying, you know, this good thing for the world. Do you want to be the only one that's not up there? And so that way you can coerce a lot of people to perhaps make uh, decisions that they wouldn't otherwise uh, otherwise make. So I guess I would say I'm, I'm optimistic that if we focus on all of the individual solutions, 
that that are out there to help us continue to reduce and uh, help to abate and help to capture and store and adapt, uh, then, then I think we're going to make it. I, just this idea that I, I get it. We talk about a climate disaster. And yes, it is a slow moving disaster, but we shouldn't have this impression that we're going to hit some sort of a point and then everything's all over completely. That's just not going to be the, 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 the case. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of little wins and quick wins along the way. And we should take those, um, take those with us. Okay. All right, gentlemen, anything else to add before we close? Um, I guess my final thought is um, I want to echo the idea of optimism. You know, uh, COP meetings are often a point where, uh, you know, the media builds up this this very dark picture of where we're going. And, and uh, often the individual COP meetings are held up as a make or break. This is the do or die. Particularly before Glasgow, there were a lot of people talking about this is it, last chance, you know, last chance. Uh, I really do not subscribe to that. I, I think that the meetings are really important for the accountability piece. Um, I think that we probably don't need the full circus to hold people accountable, but you know, maybe, maybe we do, maybe we do, uh, people want to get together to talk about these things, but I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years. When I started working in this area, there weren't a lot of solutions available for us to utilize. Actually, the technologies just weren't there. Uh, there was very little agreement. Uh, it was a very, very difficult mountain to climb. Today, uh, it's still a difficult mountain to climb, but there's a lot more there to support us. And uh, I'm, I'm much more hopeful. Thank you so much. And Ryan, over to you. Yeah, I just wrap it up with uh, uh, just this idea that there's a lot of potential out there, right? So we're, we're at the cusp or the start of probably the largest capital reallocation since you know, I'd say post any kind of war since the since the Industrial Revolution. So that's going to open up a whole lot of opportunity and an opportunity to uh, for us to invest in, you know, a better public transportation system, better buildings, more comfortable. I mean, really, we're, we're talking about investing in things that makes our life better. So there's opportunities there. And I think even if we're not part of the sort of opportunity set, the infrastructure around us is going to get invested in. It's going to be upgraded. It's going to be easier and more comfortable to do a lot of the things that, that that we do. So if we see it from a perspective as let's just invest in today and our future, I think there's a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of good messages that can come out of that. Thank you so much. And thank you both for joining us today here on CFRC's Campus Beat. Uh, folks, we have been chatting with Dr. Warren Maybe, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, director of the School of Policy Studies and associate dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science, alongside Dr. Reardon joining us from Munich today, who is a Smith School of Business professor and distinguished professor of finance and the director of research for the Institute of Sustainable Finance. And we have been uh, chatting all about the goals and the outcomes of COP27 and trends over various COPs over the last 27 years. Thank you both very much for your valuable time today and, and so many uh, fascinating insights. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Warren. Thanks, Dinah.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.